0: Hello, and welcome to this live recording from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy what God's got to say to you.
1: A very warm welcome. It's great to be here together as women. It's always great to come together as women. My name's Sue Ford, and I serve on the pastoral team here at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you're a visitor and you don't know me, it's really great to have you here. I'm sure you'd all agree that in this world in which we live with such brokenness, We're all affected by that brokenness. Whether we feel that in our own lives, I think most of us do in some way, we at least feel it in the lives of our family members and people that we know in the community. There's so much brokenness. The amazing thing is that God wants to restore that and to be at work in that brokenness, to give us hope, to give us that hope for the future, to do that work of restoration in our lives as we turn to him. And Helen Meyer, who's with us today, has a real passion to see people healed and restored and live the best life that they can, that God intended them to live. And out of this passion, Helen and her husband, Alan, established established Careforce Life Keys, a ministry that releases healing, discipleship and evangelism, and now used in more than 2,300 churches and organisations across Australia and actually across the world. Helen loves study, I think. She's got a master's in education, a master's in counselling and a master's in sexual health that she completed in 2017. I think you have to say she loves study if you've done all that, Helen. Helen and Alan have four children, 12 grandchildren and they're actually celebrating their 51st wedding anniversary today. So happy anniversary. (laughs) And she still wants to come and be with us. So in this first session, Helen's going to share on the topic shame and guilt. And in the second session, after morning tea, we'll have morning tea in the break on the topic grief and loss. So let's give Helen a warm West Australian and wedding anniversary welcome. Please come, Helen.
0: Thank you, Sue. It's so lovely to be with you. Yes, I love Perth. It's a brilliant, beautiful place. And my mother came from Perth. She married my dad and ended up living in Melbourne. So that's why I'm from Melbourne. But my grandfather actually was a farmer in Nanop. And uh, so the farm is still in the family. I have 22 first cousins, most of whom I don't know because of the distance. In those days, it was like another country. It still is. A long way. So... Very special place, Perth, in my heart and the heart of my family. So thank you for having me here today. And um, look, I know there's just a limited time to be able to talk about the things we want to talk about, so that's why Alan and I bring resources with us that might help you after we've left. Um, I've got some that might, you might be interested in, one called No Shame, which is four DVDs. On the topic of shame that we're covering today... Another one that I've done is on For Women Only, which deals with sexual issues for women, our own private little stuff, and also Healthy Lifestyle, which is a 10-session DVD course that's been vetted by doctors and university professors and things that we actually developed as part of our resources. You know, I had an experience in my life that shaped me for a long time. It happened when I was about 10 years old. Um, My background, as I said, my family, some of them came from, they were from Perth, we lived in Melbourne, but I didn't grow up in a Christian family at all and uh, my mother died when I was eight. We had four years of family crisis and medical issues and we had no resources beyond ourselves to be able to cope with that event and so as a result of that, my dad uh, found himself using alcohol as a way to try and deaden his pain, I'm not judging him, this is what happened, he had no resources, he had no God to call on and so that was the environment in which I was being reared and I remember the experience happened when I was about 10 years old, it was a couple of years after my mother had died and um, the alcoholism in my dad's drinking was a real fertile ground for shame for me. And I can remember he was out with some of the neighbours one night off at an event. And he came back and he was absolutely off his face, drunk. And I remember how ashamed and how humiliated I felt at that age, even at 10. And somehow in my heart I made this subconscious vow that I would prove that this family was worth more than that. And that was a pretty tough place for a child to make a declaration without even realising it. And I used all sorts of ways to try and cover my shame that I didn't realise I was doing. I was always the good girl at school. Um, I was a great performer at my academic studies. I had the capacity to do that, so I did. Um, I was a prefect at school. My husband says, you've always been bossy. (laughs) But I was trying to prove somehow that I was valuable, that I was trying really hard to measure up. And you know, we can see this in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7. First time we see shame in action. And it says, And then the eyes of both were opened, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. But because Adam and Eve stepped away from what God had called them to live out, the best life that the tree was meant to be the declaration of their test of loyalty uh, towards him they broke that and so the first thing they experienced was shame and uh, we saw them trying to cover up it was a bit like experiencing that vulnerability in the heart and yet using material things to try and cover it up and shame is an inner sense of inadequacy it's kind of like a glob it's really hard to describe isn't it but it's an unworthiness that leaves us feeling exposed. And underneath all of that, it provokes fear. And we do all kinds of things to try and hide that and cover it up. And we do a lot of work to look better on the outside like, than we really are on the inside. Every one of us has a great need, a God-given need for love, acceptance and value. But it sets us up for these unhealthy ways of trying to do life to try and meet the needs that we have in our heart. But the soil of the heart, when it's been poisoned by shame, nothing healthy is going to grow out of that. And uh, things of all kinds that try to cover the pain that we experience, addictions of any kind, workaholism, Not at success, but working so hard to try and prove that you're something. Anger and rage can spring out of that poisoned heart. Performance, looking good, people pleasing—all of those things that are quite exhausting, aren't they? When we try to live that way. You know, pride and shame—they're opposites, but they come from the same source. Our pride says we rely on human strength and wisdom. I don't need you, and I don't need God. Our shame comes from a deep belief that I am a failure and that I don't measure up. Both of these things are based on performance and it's an evaluation of our worth. We think we're not worth it. We think we have no significance. But you know, you can see examples of this in the Bible. And one of the ones that really springs out to me is in 1 Samuel in chapter 9, where it says, there was a man of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of... I hope I don't have to pass this. A Benjamite and a man of wealth. But there's a significance in this because it's a family line we're talking about. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So his dad was rich. He was handsome. He was head and shoulders taller than any other man. I mean, what more could a man want? And yet, Saul had lived his whole life under the shadow of shame. And we have to ask ourselves, why did that happen? Well, it started in the story where his father had sent him off to look for some lost donkeys. He'd be looking for three days and he decided he couldn't find them, getting a bit stressed, obviously, thought he'd go and find the man of God talking about Samuel, and get some help. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who will rule over my people. So Samuel had this word from God. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where's the house of the seer, the prophet? And Samuel answered Saul and he said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for today. You shall eat with me. And in the morning, I'll tell you, I'll let you go and tell you all that's in your heart. And as for the donkeys, don't worry about it. Um, They've been found. And here's the question To whom is all that is the desire of Israel turned? In other words, everyone's looking for a king, and guess what? They're all looking at you. So isn't it to you and to your whole family's house? But how does Saul respond to that encouragement? I mean, if you were being told that you're going to be the king of Israel and you're really special and wow, God's got you in his sights, wouldn't you want to be happy? And no, not Saul. This is what he said. Am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me? In other words, why did you pick me? The question we can ask is, is this humility Or is it shame? See, there's a really big difference between shame and humility. Humility is an awareness of our inadequacy in human strength and in human wisdom. And it drives us running into the arms of God and in search of his amazing grace. But shame, it's the perception of who I am and it's rooted in my own heart, my own capacities and my own ability to do life well and we hide from God when we're experiencing shame so we see in this that Saul's uh, struggle focused on shame and he was focusing on perhaps human strength and human failure and it sees no future shame doesn't see that there's a future that God's got something different something that he wants to do with us but there's a really good question we can ask and it's this What's the source of Saul's shame? Well, it's a family story. And this is why it's significant for us today. It's a story of humiliation and it's a story of failure. It's actually a terrible story and it's told in Judges chapter 19. I'm not going to go into all the detail. But enough to say, for those of you who don't know it, there was a priest who came from Ephraim and he married a girl from Bethlehem. And obviously she didn't like it very much, so she ran back to her father's house. And the priest goes and gets her back. And uh, on the way back to his home, he stopped in a town in, this, in the town square. And the custom was that if someone was there as a traveler, then it was up to the townspeople to actually give them uh, hospitality. And so someone invited them into the house for the night. And during the night, the men of the town came knocking on the door and saying, to, we want the priest to come out because we want to have carnal knowledge with him, sex with him. Well, being a great man that he was, he sent his wife out instead. And they spent the whole night um, abusing her and in the morning they found that she was dead on the doorstep. What a terrible story. What a terrible story. And the name of the town, the town was Gibeah, a town of Benjamin. The tribe refused to allow the rest of the nation to discipline them for what they had done and there was a civil war that broke out. Um, But they did discipline them anyway and they reduced the tribe of Benjamin down to 600 fighting men. And here's the point. Gibeah was Saul's hometown. See, every family has its stories. Every family has its skeletons in the closet. And I am so grateful for amazing grace that allows mistakes to be forgiven and there can be stepping stones To a greater future. And only God can take that and turn it into something amazing. And I'm so glad that He does. But shame, if we stick with the shame, we allow it to stick to us, it demands we hide. It demands we lower our eyes. It demands we reduce our expectations. Why should anything good ever happen to me? Look at my family background. Look what's happened. Look what I've done. And we tell ourselves we're not worthy. Well, Family stories really have the power to shape our destiny and that of our children, generations. And that's what we see with this story with Saul. That's why they listed the genealogy, because it was a family line that Saul found himself in and this terrible event happened. And so when Samuel spoke to Saul about you're going to be the king and God's got his eyes on you, he goes, no way. I come from Gibeah that terrible town, even though it was generations before that had happened to him, to the town, and Saul had nothing to do with it. He still lived in the atmosphere of that shame and that story. And so my family, I guess, uh, Exhibit A, me, I don't mind sharing my stories because God has redeemed, but, you know, there's been a journey. And, uh, and my family was always shrouded in secrets, although I didn't know it at the time. As an older as an adult, you start to realise some of the things that happened. It was an atmosphere. My grandparents were always whispering about things and phone call they had once where it was sort of this little in the background chatter and chaos. Uh, and they were really evasive about how long they'd been married. And as I said, I had no cousins on that side of the family back in Melbourne, nobody at all to help, and only one aunt. And I thought we were a really small family. And when tragedy struck our home, we had no resources, as I said. When both my grandparents died, uh, my dad was going through all their papers and discovered that he'd been conceived before they were married. And he'd never knew that. They never said. But they lived with the shame of that. And it's so sad that they lived with the shame of that. It's so sad they never found God and his grace and his goodness that um, one mistake doesn't make a lifetime that God is able to redeem. And that was why there was no contact with my grandmother's side of the family. But you know, not all family secrets are negative. Sometimes they can be positive things. And when I was doing a hunt on my family tree, I discovered that I had a a lot of public figures in my family on my grandmother's side. My great-great-uncle was a member of the first Australian federal parliament. And my dad never knew that. And we never knew. So if our family story had been interpreted through the eyes of grace, through the eyes of God's goodness, it would have been a completely different atmosphere and attitude and looking towards what God would want to do with our lives. But we had no idea that that grace was available to us. You know, um, shame really blinds us to the fact that we can be redeemed, that God is able to restore. It blinds us to the truth that he can... um, take the things of our past and he can forgive and he can restore and he can strengthen and he can do something with those things that were there to tear us down and yet God can take them to use them to build ourselves and others up around us. But what happened to Saul? Well, um, Samuel anointed him with oil and said, you're anointed as the prince over the people And here's some signs that are going to happen to you so you're going to know it's God. Not just because I said it, but there's going to be some events that actually confirm that. And he told him what was going to unfold, that he was going to go back towards his father. He's going to meet these guys who were, they'd found the donkeys and he was going to meet someone um, carrying three young goats and another carrying three sacks of bread, pretty specific, and a third, a jug of wine. So, and when that actually all unfolded, amazing thing happened. Before, and it says here, before you know it, the Spirit of God will come on you. This is on Saul. You'll be prophesying right along with them. You'll be transformed. You'll be a new person. When these confirming signs are accomplished, you'll know that you're ready. Whatever job you're given to do, do it. God's with you. Isn't that a, what an amazing word over him? And when all those events unfolded, uh, and they happened exactly as Samuel had prophesied. And yet, when Saul meets his uncle, And his uncle asks him about what happened when he met Samuel the prophet. All he says is, oh, he told us plainly the donkeys had been found. that was it. About the issue of him becoming the king and the kingdom, never said a word. I'd be excited, I don't know about you. I'd be rejoicing in God's favour and in his blessing. But no, and this is the power of shame. It's the problem with it. It inhibits our confidence in the call and blessing of God. It keeps us from confessing and believing that God's working in our lives. It's by his grace that we accomplish the things that he's called us to do. And he enables us. He never calls us without also enabling us. And yet Saul had all of these confirming things happen. And yet his family background and the baggage from that history was still being lived out in his life today. And so it was robbing him of a boldness of his faith that he could have had the favour of God, the prophetic word from Samuel, and yet he still backed off and lived in that space. Yet he did actually become the king. Um, But he acted a lot of times out of fear instead of faith simply because of that shame of his family background. And so it cost him everything in the end. Um, He was um, at a war. And his soldiers were still with him, but he was scared to death. They all started deserting. He was waiting for Samuel to turn up and do some kind of um, sacrifice that would turn the battle around and they would win. And Samuel hadn't turned up. He got sick of waiting. And so he decided to take it into his own hands. He said, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We get impatient with waiting for God. We think, well, I'm going to do it my way. Patience. Resting, sitting, waiting for God to show us when. He didn't have that patience. And he went ahead and he did the burnt offerings. And no sooner had he done this, than Samuel showed up. And this is what Samuel said. You have acted foolishly. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. It wasn't Saul as a man and God's call on his life that destroyed him. It was his lack of faith and trust in who God was. He had no idea of the goodness and the grace of of God, of the anointing, of the fact that his family line was not the thing that dictated where God wanted to take him as a person. But he was paralysed when he was under pressure. He was disobedient. Um, His shame drove him to do things that God had called him not to do. And in fact, he did the opposite. And ultimately, we know the story where he ended up um, in witchcraft and suiciding. You might ask, well, did God pick the wrong guy? No, but it was Saul who allowed the shame of his heart to override that favor and blessing that God wanted to give him. I don't know about you, but I don't want to miss out on anything that God has for me because of my own view of who I am I want God to change my heart I want him to change my view of who I am and how he sees me and it is a journey but it starts with knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and I love the contrast in this in this uh, in the Bible where God shows us uh, how he picked somebody else um, a man who wasn't big in stature in fact he was pretty little he wasn't very handsome And he was considered the least in his family. So um, disregarded was he that when Samuel came to the family to try and find another king, they didn't even invite him into the room. He was out in the paddocks looking after the sheep and goats. But Samuel had a sense that this wasn't any of the... And none of these brothers were the right one. Have you got another one? Yes, they invited him in and this is the one. See, the man God chose David, he was the shepherd boy... He ended up um, slaying Goliath. He encouraged himself in God when his men wanted to leave. What a contrast to Saul. And this is the man who wrote Psalm 51 after adultery and murder that he'd committed as he turned his heart back to God. And you see, David refused to live in the shame and the guilt. He looked to God who was his saviour. He looked to God as his salvation He looked at the call of God on his life and he repented and God restored. And this is the man that wrote Psalm 23. What a contrast. Well, who am I? Who are you? We are God's creation. God loves you. He wants to see you fulfill all the dreams he has for you. He's got more for you. And it's not about age or stage. It's about what God is doing in you and through you. He's never finished with us until the day we go home to be with him. There's always more he wants to do in us. There's always more he wants to be to do through us. And I really want to encourage you this morning. Don't let anything from the past, your past behavior, uh, your family background, your family story, whatever the circumstances are, you are especially loved and graced and blessed by God. Believe that in your heart you are valued, you are loved, you are accepted by him through Jesus Christ. Jesus took all of our shame and he carried it to the cross and he put it to death there. So if we find ourselves Accusing ourselves and feeling that blob of shame and experiencing that kind of um, expression of denigrating ourselves, you can't, you won't, you'll fail. We need to turn our hearts towards God and say, God, you say different things about me. Lord, you nailed all that shame to the cross so that you give me a life of abundance. Lord, you want to do more in me and through me. I'm open to that. Whatever you call me to do, you'll also anoint me to do it. You'll give me the strength. You'll give me the wisdom. So I don't lean on human strength and human wisdom. I lean on your grace. I lean on your goodness. And where I need to repent um, for things perhaps that I've done, I do that, Lord. But I take my heart and I give it to you afresh. And Lord, I ask you to take my life anew and every piece of shame. Every time that voice in my head tells me, you're never enough, you're never good enough. We need to turn our hearts and even with our voices to say, that's a lie. God says differently about me. No matter what has happened in my past, God has more for me. Whatever has happened with my family line, it's done, it's dead at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to pray for you this morning as we finish. Father... I thank you so much, Lord, that you minister to us in our broken places. You whisper to our hearts of how much we are valued and we're loved and we belong. I thank you, God, that there is a fresh infusion, even in the hearts of these precious women, even right now as we take a moment, as we reflect on that story of Saul and David and the contrast. How much you wanted to use Saul and bless him and yet his family background, his own insecurities, they led him where he did not want to go and yet they led him there. God, you wanted to do more. But thank you, God, you took David and you took something that someone who was small, insignificant and you turned him into a giant. Lord, you do that in our lives, Father. Lord, I thank you, God, that you take the least and you strengthen them. You take the wounded and you bring healing. You take our lives and all the love that you expressed at the cross of Calvary, Lord. You bring it to our hearts today. Father, I pray for every woman here. Lord, where shame has entered in, where they've lived in shame. Father, I pray for a breaking out today. Like the butterfly that comes out of that chrysalis, Father, I pray right now, Lord, there'll be an emerging, an emerging to the beauty of your love and how precious and wonderful they are before you. And I pray, God, that those Coloured wings of the butterfly would grow bright and brighter, Lord, as they spend time before you, as they acknowledge your goodness, as they put aside the lies of inadequacy and unloveliness and not belonging. For God, you call them into your family. You embrace them. They're precious to you. you. You love them now and for eternity. They're going to be with you forever. So, Father, I pray right now that you do healing. The name of Jesus is like ointment poured forth into our hearts. As Paul prayed that he may dwell, the Holy Spirit may dwell in our hearts, every part of our heart through love, that it might flow down into those parts of our heart that we've hidden away, that we've kept shut down. And we open those doors this morning and say, Lord, we invite you in with your love. We invite you in with your ointment of healing. We invite you in, God, because you are the God of restoration, the God of love. And we thank you, Lord, that even as this morning continues, you're going to be doing things in us. You're going to be speaking to us Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There was um, somebody by the name of Corrie Ten Boom. You've probably heard of her. Some of you won't have. Um, Her family was actually hiding Jewish people in their home during World War II. And because of that, they got discovered and sent off to concentration camp. And as a result, all of Corrie's family died, especially her beloved sister. So if anybody has anything to say about living in the middle of crisis and challenge, it's her. And this is what she said. She said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. You know, a number of years, I hit a wall in my life. As I said in the last session, I was growing up in the family with the early death of my mother, When I was eight, she died, left my brother six, my sister three. And so my father's subsequent trying to deal with his pain through alcohol set me up as an adult for a lot of struggling with anxiety and stress. You know, everyone copes with stress differently. Part of it is your wiring, part of it's what you've seen modelled and part of it's the coping mechanisms that you develop as a child to survive in the midst of challenge but this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25 he said don't worry about your life but the thing is you have to learn to do that And I've had to learn to do that. My tendency um, was to stuff pain and anxiety by burying it and just doing more. I was kind of like the the workaholic, like the ever-ready bunny. And if I was feeling stressed, I'd just add more to it. So it buried it again and off I'd go. And it was very distracting. But you can only do that for a certain period of time. It's a bit like ignoring um, the red light on your car. Oh, that's annoying. That's really distracting. Let's cover it up. It's really frustrating. And you kind of do that in our lives. We do it emotionally, spiritually. And um, we know what the story is going to end up like if we do that with our car light. We're going to stop pretty soon. And, you know, I learned to live my life on this kind of what I call red alert. And uh, I'd perfected the art of worrying quite well. But the problem was that over time... And when my kids were in their teens, my body started to protest against that. And I ended up finding myself in hospital having a prolapse martial valve. But I'm so glad that God healed me from that. And I'm so glad that here I am to tell you about it. The thing is, there's a lot of losses and a lot of grief in our lives actually produce fear and worry at the heart of it. And so I asked myself the question, "What do we worry about?" And uh, there was a group of researchers in a university in the U.S. who did some research on that to find out what do people actually worry about. And the first thing they found was that forty percent of our worries are about things that never happen. And the author Mark Twain said, "I'm an old man. I've had many troubles, most of which never happened." The second category they found was that 30% of our worries are about things from the past that can't be changed. The third category they found was that 22% of our worries are needless and unnecessary. And there was this minister who used to often sit up at night awake worrying, fruitless worrying. And one night God spoke to him and said, Quail, you go to bed. I'll sit up the rest of the night. So what percentages of our worries and concerns are legitimate? In other words, there's a real need for us to be concerned about something. Well, if you're doing the maths, 40% about things that never happen, 30% about things in the past we can't change, 22% needless and unnecessary, well, that Mm -hmm. leaves us with 8%. 8% of the things that we're worried and concerned about have any kind of legitimacy where we actually have to do something. And anxiety and worry uh, that are, un- are underlying the guilt and the um, grief and loss that we struggle with can really affect our well-being. In Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 25, it says, Anxiety in a person's life weighs them down. How true. You know, when we live with the threat of loss, Um, We can live as if loss is always just around the corner, just like those worries uh, of things that never happen. We can live fearing the worst. We can live in a way that we feel helpless. We can live um, and see loss as contagious so we stay away from anybody who's had loss because we might catch it. Um, Or we live a life that's highly contained and we're afraid to take risks or do anything, even the things that God's called us to do, we're afraid to actually take that step through and trust Him, and we really do struggle with trusting God when we have um, the threat of loss through loss that le- that comes uh, that ends up with worry and concern as the driving force. So unresolved grief uh, can cause the pain to be reactivated in our lives, especially the stuff that comes from our childhood. And that's why we need healing. It blocks us from the process of forgiveness, too. We can't let go. Every single one of us are on a journey and we're going to experience grief. Everyone has their own unique journey, too. And yet, there are sometimes the hidden, unresolved losses that we're unaware of with fear and worry. And you know, not only do we live in a world where it's a material world, but we live in a world that is spiritual as well. And sometimes we lose sight of that. And there's an enemy of our soul, the devil, who loves to get on board and pressure us in the areas of our vulnerability. You know, what happens sometimes is that when we have grief and loss, which is driven by fear and worry, then we're afraid to do anything step out to do what even God's called us to do and we start avoiding situations because we feel vulnerable and we don't like the feeling of feeling vulnerable I want to feel safe so my way of feeling safe is to step back behind and we start building our own prison walls and we we stop ourselves from making choices that give us the abundant life that God saved us for and to And we avoid a challenge out of fear that we, and we never get to discover who we really are. It's a tragedy that we never live the life that God has called us to. So stepping out from behind this prison wall that we've built is really, really important. We rob ourselves. I don't know about you, have you ever had this experience? And maybe it's just me. You've got an issue with someone and you don't really want to talk to them because you're afraid of bumping into them. So you go to the supermarket oh, and you see them down one aisle, so you quickly whip down another aisle, because I don't want to talk to you. Um, so that's the fear. Then you, it, it grows, because, because when you've avoided something, the fear and the worry and the anxiety actually grows. It doesn't get smaller, and it actually adds to our feelings of helplessness. So... Okay, now I've avoided this person at the supermarket. I think I'll go to another supermarket so I don't even have to avoid them there. And you then maybe you get to the point of avoiding the shops. I'm not even gonna to go to the shops. I'm gonna order online, I'm not going out. And you can see how we restrict our lives, step back further and further because of anxiety and fear and because we are afraid and anxious, we step back and build these walls in front of ourselves. You know. When we challenge the thing that we're afraid of, when we challenge the fear of loss in our lives, you're going to feel that there's an empowerment that comes with that. And I'm so encouraged that when you step through the tissue paper world of our own prison, then we can see God do things in our lives that we could never see is possible. But how do I live and deal with fear and worry in the midst of all the challenges of our lives, And how do I live in a bold and abundant way in the life that God's promised me to? Well, I'm really grateful about what the Bible has to say and what the wisdom he brings to the table that we can take a hold of and live. I want to break out of my tissue paper wall and I want to just tell you that when I first started in ministry, I was terrified to stand up in front of a group and talk. You might find that really surprising now, but it was an agonising journey to stand up and talk. I was fine with the year nine boys because I was a high school teacher, but when I had a group of people of adults my own age, that was a struggle and I had to do that journey bit by bit to challenge those fears and do Do the stuff anyway, what what God has called me to do. And I'm grateful for the wisdom that there is in the Bible. Psalm sixteen is one of my favourite, and verse five it says this The Lord is my chosen and assigned portion, my cup. You hold and maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Yes, my heart instructs me in the night seasons. I've set the Lord continually before me. Because he's at my right hand, I'm not going to be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my inner self rejoices. My body too shall rest and confidently dwell in safety. See, this is the thing that God has actually given us a blueprint for a life filled with faith, hope and health, both for now and for the future. The first thing we see here is that we need to acknowledge what God has put in our hands, who God is. He's a precious, precious king of all the universe. He rules and he reigns, and yet he looks down to us and he sees us as precious, as his daughter, as the one he wants to grow, the one he wants to help become everything we were created to be. So I love those words of encouragement. In five and six, it says, The Lord is my chosen and assigned portion, my cup. You hold and maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. The promise, the promise. Trust his character and his promises. And the second thing is to remember that 92% of our worries are unfounded. What might happen? What could happen? What will happen? And the thing is, we give them teeth because we feed them. We feed the negative thoughts. We feed, feed the unbelief. We feed our view of God who maybe we think maybe not as good as he seems to be. And we feed all that. And they are elevated in our mind and they rule the decisions that we make. No, I couldn't possibly be a Bible study group leader. Oh no, I couldn't lead a connect group. Oh no, I couldn't pray for somebody. And yet this is what God's calling us to And when he calls us, he also enables. And so stepping through that tissue paper wall of the prison that we build around us, through fear and worry, through fear of loss, and stepping through that, we find on the other side of it, it was easy. It was easy. I just had to take the first step. I had to make a start. And God's with me. He's the wind beneath my wings. He's promised me a good inheritance He's promised me he'll go before me. He's continually in my right hand. I'm not going to be moved. What a God. And yet we give all those negative things teeth. We need to challenge that thinking. Maybe it's come from some of the background, like we talked about in the last session with Saul and his family. Maybe it's a family thing. Maybe it's a learned thing from those who are around you who were always negative I know for me, I had a grandmother. She Look, she was lovely, but she was such a worrier. Every time I got in a car, she was like a jelly blob. And it has not helped me as an adult. I've really had to work on um, not being nervous in a car, for, and it's totally ridiculous. But you know how you pick things up. So I've had to learn how to manage that and trust God. God's got my life in his hands. Um, she mentored me in the art of worry, actually. But we need to challenge those things that we think that are faulty beliefs. They're not what God says about us. They're not what God says to us or who he says we are. And yet, I don't know if you've ever heard this said, if I don't worry, something terrible will happen. (laughs) If I don't worry, something terrible will happen. Now, you know that's true, don't you? Um, Let me tell you a bit of a story. Um, I've got three sons and a daughter. My daughter's the oldest and uh, three three boys. And we had family dinner at our place when they all lived within their area. And uh, we heard them talking about they were going to the beach the next day, which they do quite often. And um, the next day, they obviously were off to the beach. And my husband and I were driving somewhere. And I just had this thought, why don't you pray for the kids? Um, they really need... You know, they're going to the beach. So, oh, okay, Alan, we'll pray. So we just prayed. I didn't hear angels or bells or anything like that. I just thought, Lord, Lord just look after them while they're at the beach and keep them safe and ha- let them have a great day. That was it. Well, this is the story that came back to us. This was a, church, uh, a beach called Gunnamatta Beach, which is a notorious beach, where a family of five had drowned the year before my boys were there. And uh, they'd gone, my boys had gone to the beach. There was um, nobody else there had gone into the surf, all stupid, never mind, won't go there. Um, and uh, the oldest boy had gone out and um, he got into real trouble in a rip. And he, he said, Mum, I was going down for the last time. So my second son, Luke, decides he saw his brother out there in trouble, so what does he do? He goes out into the water and tries to help him. And pretty soon he's in trouble too. So here's my two oldest boys in trouble in a rip. The la- oldest one saying, I'm going down for the last time, And then all of a sudden, this person appears on a surfboard, out of nowhere, um, throws the oldest boy a pair of um, flippers and grabs the oldest one off the... and puts him on the surfboard, swims him back out to the the beach and then turns around and he's gone. Well, I don't know about angels, but, hey, I can believe that. The hilarious bit is my youngest son, Sam, was sitting on the beach totally oblivious to all this stuff that was going on that's Sam that's Sam but the point I'm making is if I had worried would I have stopped something terrible from happening no I had I wanted to be open to God and if God taps me on the shoulder even when I don't even know he's tapping me on the shoulder just to utter that prayer God will show us if we're open to him if we walk with him if there's something that he wants us to, to partner with him in, him in, he will show us. We don't need to worry. That's not going to change anything. Just trust God. Trust his character. Trust he is who he says he is. Trust that he loves you. Trust that he has an abundant life for you. And that 92% of your fears are unfounded. They've, they've got nothing. They're just air. And this is what, again, it says in verses 7 and 8 in that Psalm 16. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. The Holy Spirit is able to speak to us even when we're asleep. Because sometimes we're a bit stubborn, aren't we, when we're awake? So even at night, he instructs us. I'm so grateful for that, that we've got a God of love and care. And it's not a judgment. That's all died at Calvary. All done and dealt with. And it says, I've set the Lord always before me, and because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So grateful that we have a God of love, a God who says he's at my right hand. It says I won't be moved because he's there. I can trust someone who is faithful. I can trust the blueprint he's given us. But what we need to do is train our minds to bring every thought captive to Christ so important the lies we tell ourselves the voices in our head and sometimes they're things that have come from our childhood and they become so automatic we don't even know that they're there and they whip through in less than a second and we're telling ourselves you can't do this you've been asked to be a leader you can't possibly do that I can't pray for that person I'm not very spiritual how about trusting God he's able it's the Holy Spirit anyway How about stepping out through that tissue paper wall? How about trusting God and his character? How about living the abundant life that he's called us to? Not a perfect life. We all make mistakes. It's not about that. But the abundant life he's called us to. How about we take risks? How about we step out beyond our fears and our worries? How about we say, yes, I've lost things in my life. I lost my mother. I had a father who was an alcoholic. And I've lost um, others in my family. But God, I'm grateful. I can trust you because you're the God of restoration. You're the God who watches after us. You're the God of Psalm 23 who says, you're going to lead us beside still waters. You're going to restore our soul. And when we do go through the valleys of the shadow, you said you'd be with us, with your rod and your staff. You're a comfort to us. You're a strengthener to us. And yes, even in the middle of all of our enemies, God, you are preparing a table for us. That that speaks of abundance. It speaks of his goodness. It speaks of the capacity he has to restore in our lives and give us good things. And then it goes on and says, I'm going to fill your cup not just to the top. I'm going to feel it to overflowing so that blessing and mercy and his goodness follow us all the days of our lives. Now, that's the God we serve. That's the God we honor. That's the God we love. And we can take our fears and worries. We can take our Losses, We can take them to the cross. There's not a single thing that we experience that he's not also experienced. You imagine what Christ went through in that garden of Gethsemane where he cried out to the Father, "'If this cup could pass from me, if it could be done another way, let it pass from me, but not my will yours.' Even the Lord knew what it meant to suffer. He knew what it meant to struggle.' And yet he submitted himself to the will of the Father. He was able to open his heart and say, whatever you call me to, I'll follow, I'll do it. And so not only has he done that for us when he was nailed to that cross, he's also given through the Holy Spirit the strengthening for us to be able to live the life he's called us to. And yes, it is times there there's terrible loss that happens in our lives. There's struggle, and yet God will make it up. He says he'll wipe away every tear that we've ever cried. He will make up for the losses and things. I've grown up all my life without a mother, but I know I have a God who loves me. I have a God who's able, a God who'll restore at the end of the day. God will be my reward. So this life isn't all there is. There's more. This is just probation. And he, at the end of the day, as he wipes away every tear, he will be the fullness of everything that we've ever hoped for. And yet in the middle of that, in the middle of that, we can have an abundant life. Because when you step out, when you take risks, when you say yes to God, whatever he's calling you to, you can trust his love. You can trust he's a safe God. He's a safe God. And I think very often when we've had loss in our lives, we fear, is this a safe God? Yes, he's a safe God. Because Jesus said, everything you see in me, this is who my Father is. All the love, all the care, all the compassion, all the heart, you see it in Jesus, this is the Father, the heart of the Father towards us. So I'm going to take just a few moments. And as it says... Therefore, in verse 9, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, I can rejoice. Verse and 9, it says, my body will rest secure. Yeah, it also has physiological effects on us. I'm so glad, God, that you're a healing God. You're a God of the spiritual, you're a God of our emotions. You're the God that helps us live out the life you've called us to. I thank you, God, that you're also the one who's conquered our thoughts if we submit them to Christ. We take them to you. We put them under our feet and say, no, all these lies, all these worries, all this fear of loss, I put it under my feet and I trust God afresh. I turn to you, Father. Let's pray. I turn to you, Father, and I thank you that you are a good God. I trust you afresh. I trust you, God, that you are able to carry me, to take me through. Even right now, I take the tissue paper walls of my own prison and I step through them. I step through them. Whatever it is that you're fearing, whatever it is, that is a concern and worry to you now. See yourself in front of that tissue paper wall. See yourself stepping through it. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you strengthen these precious women. I thank you, Lord, that you bless them. I thank you, Lord, that every fear, every worry, every loss, they lay at your feet, God, and say, Restore, strengthen, restore my soul. Lead me beside a still water. Take me through, God. Take me through. Take me through the losses. Take me through it. Take me through with your comfort, with your strength. And at the end of the day, God, I will stand before you and you will be everything I ever hoped you would be. And yet, God, I also know that you promise an abundant life right now, an abundance of rejoicing, an abundance of your goodness, not rejoicing in ourselves but in who you are and what you have done and what you can do in us and through us. And I pray in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. If you'd like to talk to someone about what you've heard today, then you can contact the team at Mount Pleasant Baptist Church by calling the office during office hours on nine three two nine one seven seven seven. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to your company again soon. God bless.